a hangman's noose, a guillotine, a firing squad, an electric chair, a gas chamber, a lethal injection needle. This is the type of list on which the word cross belongs. It was an instrument that was invented and used not only to defeat a person, but to defeat a following, to defeat ideas. The cross developed by the Romans was used to lift up a person as an example to say, this is what happens when you act like this. This is what happens when you defy Rome. This is what happens when you give your allegiance and your loyalty to another king other than Caesar. But the irony of the gospel is that the gospel says, that's actually exactly right. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and watch him and keep your eyes on him because this is what happens when you act like this. This is what happens when you give your loyalty and your allegiance to someone like him. This is what happens when you're faithful to Yahweh and you refuse to give your loyalty and allegiance to the forces of darkness and to Caesar. Watch him. This is what God does with people like him. Here's the beauty of the cross, that God took an instrument of defeat and turned it into the ultimate symbol of victory. Amen? Amen. That's what we celebrate this morning, that faithfulness to God wins, that selfless love wins, that good wins, wins, that God wins, that the affliction and the suffering of the faithful will be turned into victory in Jesus, that God could take this symbol of shame and torture and defeat and death and turn it into a symbol of victory, one that we would embrace and glory in, one that the Apostle Paul says that he boasted in, that God would turn this symbol of defeat, this instrument of defeat, into the ultimate symbol of victory. As we continue our journey through the Gospel of John, and as we look at this morning, John describing the crucifixion, the death of our King Jesus, I want us to understand that John isn't merely reporting the facts. He is reporting the facts. But he's giving a theological statement, a profound theological statement about what the death of Jesus means. What it means. And his little markers that he gives, his little Easter eggs kind of, that he gives these markers in the text that say, this is what this means. He marks out by saying, this happened to fulfill what the scriptures say. To say God's in charge here. And what's happening here on the surface looks like defeat, but it's actually the greatest victory that's ever been claimed. So if you got your Bible, John chapter 19 and verse 16. So Pilate, he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Jewish leaders, 
to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Again, the Romans would crucify someone in a very public place to make a spectacle of them, to make an object lesson of them. And Jesus says, it's actually not you that's making an object lesson of me. It's me who's becoming an object lesson for the world. It's me who's allowing myself to be lifted up. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now again, as we've been saying the last three weeks, Pilate meant this mockingly, didn't he? To say, that's the Jews' king. That's what happens when the Jews follow someone other than Caesar. This is what happens to rebels. This is what happens to insurrectionists. This is what happens to those who would place themselves as any sort of king. We crucify them. What he meant as mocking, though, was actually incredibly, profoundly, even ironically, true. Jesus really was the king of the Jews. He really was the king of the world. But many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. I mean, we're the ones who brought him to you and said, crucify this person. We don't want him to be our king. Don't write on there that he's our king. That's insulting to us. But rather that this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder, soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And John puts in there, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, what I hope we realize, and what I hope we see, is that John hopes that his readers don't just read those words. He's not just saying that, hey, there was this random prediction in the book of Psalms, and it applies to this situation. He hopes, I believe, the entire psalm comes rushing to your mind. And if you don't know the entire psalm, that you go and read the entire psalm. Because he's saying, this is what's happening here. On the surface, it's just a bunch of cruel soldiers dividing up a man's belongings as he's hanging there dying. As he's hanging there suffocating and bleeding to death on a cross, they're down there dividing up his clothing. And on the surface, what a humiliating and shameful thing that's taking place. But John is saying something far deeper and more profound is going on here. So if we're not familiar with the psalm, we should go read it, shouldn't we? This entire psalm should come rushing to mind, and it's Psalm 22. And it's the same psalm that's referenced in other gospel accounts when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? So what's that psalm about? The psalmist feels exiled. The psalmist feels forsaken. The psalmist says that 
like dogs. They encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But most of us only stop at the psalm at those parts that talk about the suffering and the dividing of the clothing and the piercing of the hands and feet. And we don't read the whole psalm. What the whole psalm says is that the psalmist is delivered from his suffering. And though he feels forsaken by God, he's not. Though he feels like God isn't listening to him and won't answer him, God does answer him. In fact, in fact, God's deliverance at the end of the psalm leads to God's rule and reign over the nations. Look, look if you will, Psalm 22, verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the, and here, it's kind of interesting, the afflicted, singular, the afflicted person, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who hear, fear him. The afflicted, now that one is plural, the deliverance of the afflicted one will lead to the deliverance of the afflicted ones. The deliverance of one who is afflicted and feels like God has forsaken him and a company of evildoers has encircled him and they've divided up his clothing. God will hear him and rescue him and deliver him and that deliverance will lead to the deliverance of God's afflicted people. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The psalmist says, not only has he delivered me, but his deliverance of me, his hearing me and is not turning his back on me. My affliction, my suffering has led to the kingship and the rule of God over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. God wins. God hears his afflicted one. Isn't, isn't that what John is hoping rushes to our minds as we read these words? They divided my clothes among them hoping you realize this all happened to fulfill what the scriptures say. Not just those words, but the narrative of scripture, the big picture of scripture, the story of scripture that God does not forsake his faithful ones. God does not turn his back on the afflicted one. And somehow, somehow, through his deliverance of one afflicted one, it will lead to God's rule and reign over all the nations. It will lead to God's deliverance of the afflicted ones, of the suffering ones. 
and their pain and their suffering and their affliction will turn to rejoicing and worship because God wins and delivers the afflicted ones who believe in him. Now, back to the text, John 19. So the soldiers did all these things. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and John puts parenthetically, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, just the I thirst isn't necessarily the fulfilling of scripture. John says a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And John, again, hopes that the Psalms come rushing to our mind. Not just one or two words from the Psalms, but the whole story of the Psalms. The whole story about who God is and what God does when his afflicted ones, his faithful ones are suffering. And this is actually the second time in John's Gospel that he references Psalm 69. You remember when when Jesus has this zeal for the house of God? Psalm 69 and verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, I am so, I love your house so much, God, I love your name so much that everybody thinks I'm a fool. People hate me because I love you so much. And the reproach that they reproach you, it falls on me. Because I love you so much and I love your house so much and I love your name so much that I'm forsaken and I'm stricken and I'm cursed and I'm hated because of my love for you. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. Look at verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. Do you hear the psalmist's heart here? And do you see how Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate forsaken one? The ultimate afflicted one? The ultimate hated one? Zeal for the house of God has consumed him? And the reproaches that people reproach God with have fallen on Jesus. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And my comforters, but I found none. Listen to this, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me, what? Sour wine to drink. But again, the psalm ends similar to the previous psalm. Look at verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. Why? Because God has delivered. God wins. God is victorious. It looks like on the surface that this suffering and affliction will end in death. It looks like God has turned his back and isn't going to act. But nothing could be further from the truth. Through these horrible situations, God will be victorious. So I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. 
When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord, listen, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Don't you suppose that this is exactly what John hopes comes rushing to your mind when you read these words? I thirst. And John says, he said that so that the scripture would be fulfilled because there was a jar of sour wine there and they gave him sour wine to drink so that this psalm comes rushing to your mind so that you realize and I realize that the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners that in this act of Jesus giving himself and Jesus being the ultimate one for whom zeal for the house of God has consumed him, the ultimate one who has been hated and despised and afflicted, the ultimate suffering one, that not just in spite of the crucifixion, but through the crucifixion, God is hearing his needy people and not despising his own people who are prisoners, but setting them free. Look at verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. The prisoners will be set free. The exiles will be brought home. God wins. God hears his faithful, afflicted people. This act of defeat is actually an act of God's victory. And through this death, God is destroying death. Through this act of the Son of God allowing himself to suffer the curse, God is destroying the curse. Look at verse 30 of John 19. Back to the text. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. We understand why that happens, right? Because on the cross... Ultimately, it isn't the blood loss that kills you. It's the suffocation that kills you. And that you push yourself up on your spikes and your feet so that you can breathe. But if your legs are broken, you can't do that anymore and you suffocate more quickly. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, John hopes that the entire psalm of Psalm 34 comes rushing to our mind, which says, at least in part, look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears hear their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, 
the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Every single one of these psalms that John has referenced, all of them, all of them, their main point is God hears his faithful ones when they cry out to him for help. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems, listen, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None, I love this, don't you? None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. How many? None. The psalmist says, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm afflicted, I'm crying out, where are you, God? Jesus is the ultimate faithful one who's afflicted and suffering. And God says, watch him. Keep your eyes on him. This is what happens when you refuse to give your loyalty and your allegiance to anyone but me. This is what happens. I deliver my people. I win. I am victorious. I hear you when you cry out. And if you take refuge in me, and you believe in me, and you trust in me, and you give your loyalty and your allegiance to me, you will be victorious. Isn't that the message of the cross? And John is telling us, even before we get to the story of the resurrection, this is not defeat, because it is impossible. It is impossible for God's faithful ones to be defeated, much less his ultimate faithful one. If you trust in me, I will deliver you. Not one of your bones will be broken. And then he says, John, again, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And this is from Zechariah. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Go home, read the whole book of Zechariah. It won't take you very long. Maybe read it in a paraphrase because it's one of those apocalyptic books. But it's so good, so rich. That the prophet said hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, this is what God is going to do. God's king is going to come, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's going to come and he's going to rescue his people. And Zacharias says something incredibly shocking in chapter 12. He says that somehow, somehow, someone who is incredibly devoted to God, maybe even someone who is God, will be murdered and somehow their murder will turn the hearts of the people around. Look at Zechariah 12 and verse 10. The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, the one on him whom they have pierced, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Somehow, the murder of this innocent one will turn the hearts of the people. And then he says in the next chapter, 13 and verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Isn't this exactly what happened? 
through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, and people's hearts were turned, and they looked on him whom they had pierced, and they said, my Lord and my God, and they repented of their sins, and they rejoiced that a fountain had been opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and that fountain has flowed out to the world. And now all of us who take refuge in him, all of us who look on him who has been pierced and give our loyalty and our allegiance to God, we find that what was true for Jesus, that God rescues his afflicted ones, that what looks like defeat on the surface is actually victory because it's impossible for God's people to be defeated. It's impossible for God's people to be defeated. That this ultimate act of sin, God reversed to take away sin. That this death was actually, was actually the death that would destroy death. That this taking on of a curse was actually the act that would reverse the curse. John is saying all of these things that the scriptures told you, it's all coming true in Jesus. This is the one. This is the death that will end death. This is the curse that will reverse the curse. This is the end of our exile. This is the ultimate act of what God does to bring his rule and his reign. So now, at this point in the service, we usually offer an invitation to come forward, but we'll do that in a little while. But right now, I want to offer us an invitation to take the bread and the cup. In just a minute... We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to share the bread and share the cup of our Lord. And there's a part of that where we, we mourn for the one that humanity has murdered, the one who has been pierced. We weep for our own participation in that, but we rejoice that a fountain has been opened up for forgiveness and cleansing to us all. So here's my invitation for us this morning. Let us take the bread and drink the cup, declaring that through the cross, God has triumphed over evil. Let's sing this song in preparation of sharing that cup and bread.